In our last session, I mentioned how when I was young, I had a tendency to read Genesis as a story of good guys and bad guys, heroes and villains. And without a doubt, one of the greatest heroes of this book is the person of Joseph. Joseph the dreamer, Joseph the man who is unjustly persecuted, Joseph the diligent worker who is successful at all that he does, Joseph the man who flees sexual temptation when it comes his way. That, that was a big one that I heard a lot about as a young man going to a Christian youth group, how Joseph was a model of resisting the temptation of sexual sin. And in many ways, I think that there's a lot of merit to those ways of reading Joseph's story. There really is a lot to admire in Joseph and a lot we can learn from him. There's a reason that early Christians like bishops like John Chrysostom and Ambrose of Milan, that they regarded Joseph as a model of virtue and as even a type of Jesus Christ. Because just like Jesus, he was wrongly accused and wrongly punished, and yet in the end exalted by God. But when you read the story of Joseph in Genesis, things aren't quite that simple. As the Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis observes, although the accused Joseph represents himself as an innocent victim, the narrative casts a shadow of doubt on that claim. Maybe Joseph isn't quite so blameless as he is sometimes portrayed to be. Maybe he, just like his father Jacob and his grandfather Isaac and even his great-grandfather Abraham, maybe Joseph too has his own faults. In this session, we'll explore this theme a little further by looking at two significant moments in Joseph's life, when he was indeed the victim of wrongdoing, and, and what led to those moments, and what they have to teach us about his character and about the, the nature of the way that God works in our lives. So let's start with the first of these two events. Let's talk about what happens in Genesis chapter 37, when a young Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. The rivalry and the animosity of brothers is a major theme in the book of Genesis. Cain murders his brother Abel. Ishmael is rejected in favor of his brother Isaac. Jacob and Esau fight for their father's blessing. It's no wonder that the novelist John Steinbeck, when he decides to write a story about rivalry and violence between brothers. It's no wonder that he entitled his novel East of Eden. East of Eden is often read as a, as a lengthy meditation on the rivalry between Cain and Abel, but you could think of it as a meditation on the whole book of Genesis. Because once humanity is expelled from the garden, once it's forced to live East of Eden, it seems that there is no end to the pain that brothers are willing to inflict on one another. And there are few better examples of that than what happens between Joseph and his brothers in Genesis 37. I'm sure you know the story. One day, Joseph's dad tells him to go check on his brothers while they're shepherding the flocks. But then when they see him coming, they start to scheme among themselves on how to get rid of him and and at first they decide that they could just kill him. But one brother, Reuben, he insists they shouldn't kill him. So instead they throw Joseph in a pit. 
And then later they sell him as a slave to some passing, to some passing Ishmaelite traders on their way to Egypt. Now that's the basic facts of the story. And when you put it like that, it's hard to see how Joseph is anything but an innocent victim. But the way that Genesis tells the story, things aren't quite so simple and straightforward. In order to understand what happens here, we first have to understand where this sibling rivalry comes from. Why is it that Joseph's brothers so dislike him? Now, first clue comes in Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 and 3, where we're told two important things about this young man. First, we're told that he is acting as a kind of assistant shepherd with his brothers, who are the sons of Jacob's two later wives, Billa and Zilpah. And we're also told that Joseph brings a bad report about them to Jacob. Now, what this report is, we don't know. One medieval Jewish rabbi, the Rabbi Rashi, suggested that Joseph told Jacob that his brothers were eating flesh off some of the animals without properly purifying them and that they were sexually harassing some of the women. But that's really just speculation. We also don't know whether the report that Joseph gives is true. Was he, was he relaying something about his brothers that was true and that his father needed to know? Or was he just being slanderous? We don't know. We're not told. Regardless, though, this doesn't really cast Joseph in the best light. To quote the Jewish scholar Leon Cass, we can only speculate on the content of the evil report and only guess at his motives, but Joseph is at best a spy reporting on request to his father about the deeds of his brothers. That's the first thing that we learn about Joseph, that he is a spy on his brothers and that he's bringing back negative reports about them. The second thing we're told in verse 3 is that Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. This isn't the first time we've seen favoritism from Jacob. It's very obvious that he favors his wife Rachel, Joseph's mother, that he loves her more than the others, a fact that causes no small amount of strife in the family. And now it's clear that Jacob also loves and favors her son more than his brothers. Joseph, it seems, is he's very aware of this fact and he does little to hide it. After all, when his father gives him that, that gift of that beautiful coat, signifying his favored status as a son, Joseph parades around in it. Even when he goes to see his brothers while they're out shepherding, he wears this cloak. Not only that, he tells his brother and his, he tells his brothers and his father, he tells them dreams that suggest he will be exalted above them and one day they will bow down to him. Again, there are some important details about these dreams that aren't explained in Genesis. For instance, are these prophetic dreams that were sent from God? Or are they manifestations of Joseph's aspirations? What happens to him later in Egypt seems to confirm the truth of these dreams, but even if they are true, and even if they are sent from heaven, it's certainly unwise of Joseph to go bragging about them to his brothers who already resent him. Of course, 
None of this justifies his brother's hatred of him. It certainly doesn't excuse their decision to attack him or sell him as a slave. But it does suggest that maybe Joseph is not quite so blameless when it comes to their envy and resentment. He brings bad reports of them to Jacob. He takes pride in the symbol of his father's favoritism. And he insists on telling them about these dreams he has of his future glory and their future subservience. Verse 4 says that his brothers hated him and they couldn't speak a kind word to him. Now, Joseph may not have deserved their bitterness, but his behavior certainly exacerbated it. In two chapters later, in chapter 39, we learn about another major event in Joseph's life when he goes from being a senior servant in the home of an Egyptian official, Potiphar, to a lowly prisoner. And just as before, here Joseph is unquestionably a victim. He is falsely accused. But Genesis gives us enough clues to suggest again that maybe he's not entirely blameless in this whole affair. Two details emerge in the opening verses of chapter 39 that are important. First, we're told that the Lord is with Joseph and gives him success in everything he does. Second, in verse 6, we read, And Joseph was beautiful of form and beautiful to look at. Two things we learn. He is successful and he is very attractive. That's true, but Genesis makes it clear that neither of these two things are merited by Joseph. He does nothing to earn his beauty. It's not the result of long hours in the gym working on his physique. It's a natural gift. What's more, although he is undoubtedly a hard worker, Genesis makes it clear that his success is not just the product of his own diligence. His success is a gift of God. Joseph doesn't earn his success any more than he earns his beauty. The Lord gives it to him. And yet when Potiphar's wife tries to induce him to sleep with her, he responds in a way that suggests that he takes maybe a little pride in the position he has attained. Behold, he says, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, one way to read his response is to read it as the words of a man of unshakable integrity who refuses to give in to seductive and enticing words, no matter how easy or convenient it might seem. Joseph refuses the advances of Potiphar's wife. In fact, he refuses it multiple times, day after day, we're told. And in the end, when he finds her alone in the home and she attempts to seize his garment, he flees from her. And for that reason, he seems very much like the, the embodiment of the kind of wisdom that the book of Proverbs has in mind. When it says that those who are wise fear the Lord and that they flee from the seductive words of folly. At least that's one way to read Joseph's response. Some readers, however, question whether perhaps more is going on here. Notice, they say, how Joseph calls attention to his status within Potiphar's house. He says that he's practically equal to the master himself. 
And notice how he goes into work in the house when Potiphar's wife is there alone, despite the fact that she has been propositioning him repeatedly. Is this really the actions of someone of unshakable integrity and godly wisdom? Or is it perhaps the actions of a man who thinks quite highly of himself and doesn't hesitate to flaunt his good looks and his air of superiority in front of a love-struck woman? That's clear enough that Joseph is wronged. That's clear when the wife falsely accuses him to Potiphar and he's thrown into prison. But is he entirely faultless in this whole affair? According to the Jewish author Maurice Samuel, in reality, it was Joseph who forced the issue, as he had done in his boyhood with his brothers, forced it steadily day by day until the explosion came. In those days, he had played with his brother's hatred. Now, he toyed with a woman's love. In both instances, he was the active agent and set the pattern. And to make this clear, in both instances, he had his coat torn off him in a kind of unmasking and was thrown into the pit. I think that's placing too much blame on Joseph, and it's reading too much detail into places where Genesis is silent. To say that Joseph forced the issue and that he is in effect to blame for his mistreatment, both at the hands of his brothers and later at the hands of Potiphar's wife, that's, that's to judge Joseph in the most uncharitable way possible. And yet, with that being said, I do think that there are clues that when it comes to his brothers and even when it comes to Potiphar's wife, that Joseph demonstrated pride and at the very least that he acted in ways that were less than prudent. The Joseph we meet in Potiphar's house seems to have matured from the somewhat conceited young man who was waylaid by his brothers. But even now, his actions suggest that he has perhaps retained at least some of his old, his old feelings of superiority and his old imprudence. So what then should we take away from these stories? What do they have to teach us? Now, I'd like to suggest three takeaways. First, what I was taught about Joseph when I was in youth group, when I was growing up, is a valid point. When confronted with temptation, he resists, and in the end, he even flees. And in that regard, he is a model for us. Jesus says that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now, that might be hyperbolic, but the point's clear enough. Sin is serious, especially sexual sin. And we do well to run from it. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That's one takeaway. When confronted with temptation, do what Joseph does and resist it, even, even if in the short term it causes you pain. On the other hand, my second takeaway is not to look at Joseph as a model of, of what you should do, but rather to take him as an example of something that we should avoid, namely pride. As I said earlier, Joseph is someone who experiences phenomenal success and great favor from an early age. His, his father loves him the most. He is handsome. He's beautiful to look at. And the Lord gives success to everything he does. 
each of these are clearly not something that he has earned. Each of them are unearned gifts that he enjoys. But Joseph has a tendency to take pride in these unearned gifts and to, to become arrogant, or at least to come across as arrogant to those around him. And he's not the only one with that problem. How often do we take for granted the gifts that we are given? How often do we take credit for our talents, our abilities, or the successes in our lives and allow them to give us a sense of superiority to those around us? I think the answer is quite often. So Joseph should serve as a lesson to us, not, not just on how to flee from sin, but also on the dangers of pride, of treating the gifts of God as the products of our own effort. That's my second takeaway. And my third and final takeaway isn't so much about Joseph himself as it is about the grace of God. One thing that I've been struck by as we've made our way through this study of Genesis is how much each of the main characters of this book, they have flaws and they stand in need of transformation. Jacob must be transformed and so must Joseph. Even Abraham, the great father of faith, is a man of flaws who needs God to change and mold his character. And in each of their lives, I've been struck by how God's work of changing and transforming them takes time. In fact, it seems to take decades. It's over decades that Abraham becomes a man of unwavering faith. Over decades, Jacob is changed from that self-reliant trickster to someone who recognizes his need, his dependence on God. And it's over years that Joseph is transformed from a tattletelling teen show-off to the man who will lead Egypt through its moment of crisis. God changes each of these men, but he takes years to do it. And we should pay attention to that because it's the same with us. The God who spoke to Abraham and to Jacob is the same God who is at work in our lives today. And as with them, he is at work to transform us. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. But that doesn't mean it will happen overnight. God is at work to transform us into the image of his son. And in his wisdom, just as he did with Abraham and Jacob, and just as he did with Joseph, he often takes his time in doing so.